It's not your fault that the lightning struck the roof of your house, but it is your responsibility to fix it. And so it's being kind and compassionate to yourself to realize that actually a lot of the shit which goes on in your life is, is not your fault. But once you're aware of it, then you can start to tweak and do things about it. It doesn't mean that suddenly everything is your fault from that point onwards, because there's still a lot of residual stuff from trauma and your past and your relationship with all of that stuff. But it's understanding that actually, yeah, there's things you can do, but, but don't carry the weight of it all being your fault because it's not. Hello and welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate Marchand and today we have with us Dave, the life coach formerly known as a podiatrist and it was actually critical to the naming of this channel. If you remember, we were sat in a pub in Reading or something, somewhere that way. It was, it was a hotel in Oxford on the Abingdon Road. And I had the name Biology of Business and you loved it, so it stuck. So there you go. I have to thank do, you, you. do you know why I remember that place? Why? Because I used to live on the Abingdon Road when I was a nurse many years ago, an A&E nurse. Used so, to live literally opposite where the hotel was. Yeah, which is why you can remember it was the Abingdon Road in Oxford and not in Reading. Yeah, yeah. I went to the Reading <laughs> Festival twice, though. Does that count? Well, maybe, maybe. So, Dave, just help the listeners understand your journey from nurse to podiatrist to clinic owner, now to life coach. Blimey, how long you got? This was the this was the two hour version of this podcast. Was that is that how it works? Well, so we'll have the succinct. The succinct. Okay, right. I I yeah. So I started <laughs> off. I started off my life working in healthcare. So I was an A and E nurse originally. Worked in Oxford, as I said before. Trained to be a podiatrist, two thousand and four to two thousand and seven, and that the interest in that came from my own kind of foot and back problems and ulceration on my my left foot from finding out I had zero feeling in it while on a, a very very boozy night in Paris and walking too far. I had quite a long, relatively long career in podiatry, which involved me working band six level and band seven level, so junior management. I ran nail surgery services, ran biomechanics. I picked up a master's degree in biomechanics on the way, taught undergraduate podiatrists at Birmingham School of Podiatry, was part of the creation of a charity to help with homeless foot care. And then in 2018, I decided actually that wasn't what I wanted to be doing anymore. And after a few personal things before around anger and challenges to relationships and really having to work on my own personal development, I coached myself and I got coached a lot, particularly around business and then personal coaching and went, you know what? I want to coach people. So I sold my practice the end of 2018, stopped working clinically, apart from some teaching work and apart from the charity work with the homeless at the beginning of 2015 and then set up my coaching practice, which was healthcare business and marketing coaching, because that's what I, that's what I'd done over the years. And then during lockdown split with my my wife of probably at that point gonna work out how many years here to get this right 15 years and realized that actually what i was interested in was was people and so i, I moved across i pivoted which is the word everyone uses during lockdown i pivoted and went more into sort of life and personal coaching and most of the people i work with healthcare professionals mostly mostly female but i do work with with men as well and other genders insert your gender here and I essentially work on helping people to, to, to sort out their well-being and their happiness. And then that has a ripple effect in other directions. 
So the commonality throughout it all is that you've been working with people and helping them through difficult times, both as an A&E nurse, as a podiatrist, and with your charity work, and now as a life coach. Yeah, it all it all fit it all fits in very deeply my own values. So that's the four values I tend to lean on: are love, learning, freedom, and fun. So knowing those, I, I picked those up in twenty. I so I picked them up. I I identified them in twenty nineteen. They they'd been there for many years, and and I suddenly I understood why I made decisions. Why did I leave the NHS? Wasn't having fun. Didn't have the freedom I wanted. Why you know why did I sell my practice? Wasn't having fun. Didn't have the freedom I wanted. Wanted to to do more things. So yeah, these I. I think now I help people who are going through the same kind of things that I was going through, where they you know, wake up in the morning and go, why, why am I not enjoying what I'm doing? How do I fall in love with the stuff I'm doing? Or how do I shift to do something else? And how do I have a better relationship with me and the people around me? Wonderful, wonderful. So Dave, over the last three years, we've obviously gone through significant changes in many, many people's lives in one way or another. Not one person probably on the planet hasn't been, well, I'm sure there's been somebody on the planet, but not many people haven't been affected by what has gone on over the, the, the last two or three years. What are the residual effects of the lockdown that you're observing and the fear? And I don't know what even worse to describe that we survived, lived through. Interesting. It's interesting. I think, you know, when you ask that question, I think back to yeah, 2019, when I first started coaching, it was very much group coaching. 2020 was when everything kicked off and people slowed down. People went, okay, yeah. something's not right. I need to talk to someone. Oh, I'll talk to that bloke who's been talking about this for the last, you know, 12, 18, 24 months. And it was interesting when, when lockdown kicked in and everyone slowed down is people actually started to reach out and have conversations about stuff. And they started to craft these connections. And I had really high hopes that that kind of change would continue, but I'm not sure it has. You know, I think people have slipped back into their old routines. And and I was I was sat in traffic the other day with with my mom and dad actually, and realised that that actually we're, we're kind of back to sort of pre-pandemic and pre-lockdown levels of traffic. It's almost like things haven't changed, but th there's so many interesting messages out there. And, and I think for me, as someone who will look at the evidence and look at the research and works with people, I'm confused and I don't know what to think half the time. So, so how, how does everyone else feel? There's a really, there's, there's a really interesting element for me as a healthcare professional. I am one of those people who's like, oh, there's a vaccine, right? Let me roll my sleeve up and stick it in my arm because I feel that, that, you know, I'm protecting other people, but it has, I think seeing all the government stuff over the last sort of 12 months, 18 months, even, even up to the three years, I'm now looking at it very differently and starting to kind of question motives behind things. So I think there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's a huge amount in, in my experience of, of almost placing people on different sides. You know, if you, if you don't believe what I believe, therefore you're, you're my enemy rather than going, actually, you don't believe what I believe. Maybe there's something I can talk to you about. Maybe I can listen to that. Maybe it will, it will affect what I believe. And maybe I can say something to you, which will affect that. And I think there's, there's an element of tolerance, which has been lost. Yes. Very divisive, very yeah. divisive. Yeah. And, and my question is, well, why would, why would, if you, if you wanted to, if you wanted to divide 
you know, a population of a planet, what, what would you do? In the same way as if you wanted to create something which would infuriate people, you'd probably make it look a little bit like driving in rush hour traffic. What, what, would, you, what would you do to, to divide people? And yeah, it's been, it's been massively divisive. And, and I, I think this is where, you know, for the work I do, there's a huge amount of compassion which is needed to, to actually sit and listen. But we've got social media, we've got messages from government, we've got messages from news outlets, and I, I don't watch the news because mm. I find that it affects me so much now. Mm. That is just peddling a lot of a lot of bad news and 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 pointing the finger in in interesting directions. And I do I do think it that while this hand over here is saying something, actually what's really going on is over here. But exactly. we'll be, it's sleight of hand. Remember a story actually? I was chatting to my mom and dad just after they'd had. Might have been jab number twelve. I can't remember. It was one of the, it was one of the jabs, and they weren't feeling particularly well. And they 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 had a bit of a rough weekend of it. And and I said I said don't worry. I said you know it, you you'll be okay. You'll be fine. And they they were, they were fine with it. I said but at the moment what we're not seeing in the news is we're not seeing talk of 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 COVID and we're not seeing talk of of anything else. I said because mo- it was the time where all the Finance stuff was going on, so I think it was Quasi Quarteng had put out his budget statement, and everyone was having a, a bit of a a bit of a poof it about that. And I said, "Don't worry," I said, "Give it, give it a couple of weeks." I said, "We will be talking about other things." And then we suddenly had an increase in COVID, and we suddenly had some you know more talk of the Ukraine war. It's very much a tweaking of dials to to distract you in different directions. Yes, yes. And while that sounds like I'm probably going, they're all trying to mind control this. No, no. I think it's very it's very interesting when when you look at you know, how do you how do you steer a population? You know, the biggest way you do it is with social media and and with with the media. So, yeah, yeah. and I think the timing of things, the sequence—it's like one thing after another after another. That that, yeah. and in unison, that is certainly rang alarm bells for me. The, 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 yeah, that. I think I think it's interesting that. You know, if you take something like the reticular activating system in your brain, the you know reticular activating system looks out for patterns, and once you once you show someone a pattern, they will see that pattern. And the, the example I always give clients is, you go and buy a car brand that you've never bought before, and you buy it in a color you'd never normally buy, and as soon as you drive off the forecourt, every bugger has exactly the same car as you in exactly the same color. Now, has everyone bought the same car? No, they haven't. You're then attuned to look for those things. So I think if you if you Give people information to look for something in particular, they will find it. Whether whether it's true or not, you know, you can point people in different directions. And with so much information out there, it's hard it's hard to it's hard to sit and it's hard to be pardon me. Shouldn't drink coffee while I'm talking. There's it it's really hard to to have the critical skills which are needed because it's not taught to actually sit down with the evidence and go, okay, we've got a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of that. What, what are we really looking at? And triangulating it all like a GPS. People go with the easiest options and they go with the options which suit their agenda. That's human nature. What we, that's what we all do. But people know this so they can use it to their advantage. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So as a lingering feeling, I mean, obviously we're now, there's a lot of discussion about the, economics and about Ukraine, but there's a lingering feeling of malaise or stagnation that we haven't perhaps quite got the momentum back that we had before. And I'm meaning that for the 
clinicians as mm. well as for the man on the the man on the street. So our perhaps our wellness is not so well. Oh, agreed. Agreed. And you, you look at you look at the pressures on the NHS during you know, during lockdown, during COVID, you look at people being redeployed. I've got some podiatry friends who were redeployed from podiatry jobs onto the wards. And and one of them said to me, he said, he said, I'm glad I trained as a podiatrist. He said, because working on the wards is bloody hard. So we, we, we've seen a lot of pressure. And, and I, I said to someone the other day, I said, you know, initially it was a nurse friend. I said, initially we had started off with, you know, clapping for nurses on a, you know, on a Thursday. And then, it, and then in, in recent, you know, with, with the strikes and things like that, it's very much gone from clapping for nurses to slapping the nurses. And we, we, I don't think I've ever seen in my entire healthcare career, I've never seen, you know, people striking in healthcare. Mm. I was in a, an A&E department in Oxford, which got that close to doing it because their, their conditions were not good back in the early 2000s, but, but didn't go that far. But then seeing, you know, actually nurses striking and, you know, seeing all of these, these agencies going, no, enough's enough. You know, there's a problem. Mm. No, there's a problem, you know, cuts, austerity, 13 years of, of things being really, really cut back. Some, something has to give at some point. So yeah, I think people are generally, are generally feeling it now. And I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people around burnout. Burnout isn't a new thing and stress isn't a new thing, but it's something which people are, people aren't getting the chance to recover from these bouts of stress. We're not designed to run on high adrenaline all the time or cortisol all the time. We're designed to kind of ebb and flow. It's like, yeah, bit of a stress period, bit of a relaxed period, bit of a stress period, bit of a relaxed period. And we haven't, it's been stressed. Thank you. Thank you, Siri. It's been a, it, it's, it's been a very stressed situation all the way through. And we're seeing how that shows up in terms of people's physical health and people's mental health and you know, people's social health and, and, and just generally how they're living. So the, the, the sort of diagnostic is that society, individuals and society are not designed to tolerate this prolonged period of ongoing unrelenting stress in their lives without having a chance for some respite. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a system which is, is reduced on money and reduced on and kind of investment, a system where you've got the cost of living has, has gone up for a lot of people. And, and yes, people have had pay rises, but it's been a loss in real terms. The, the expectation of the health service to provide treatments, um, all of those things kind of, you know, it's not one thing, but everything kind of stacked on each other be, becomes a problem. So yeah, absolutely. So what does constitute wellness? Because I know this is something that you talk about in terms of the, the pillars of wellness and how we can make sure in this situation that we do become much more aware of our own wellness and take proactive action to pr pr protect ourselves. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's probably five areas which I would, I would identify. And they, these are... And they, they, they've shifted for me over the last sort of 12 months. I've kind of added bits and taken bits away, but, but the, the research evidence is, is very clear that if you, if you want to reduce stress and burnout and crucially when people get stressed and they get burnt out, what happens is patients get harmed, clients get harmed. And normally there's things which are very reduced in that. So it's people are not authentic. They can't be themselves. So, you know, authenticity being managing your day-to-day -day existence through your values. People don't have control over the work that they do. So they're not able to have flexibility in their work processes. And that's partly why I left the NHS eight years ago was because I didn't have the flexibility in my work processes. 
community and connection is, is reduced massively. So people are not feeling connected to the work that they do or the people around them because there is suspicion, a bit like the Elvis song, you know, suspicious minds. Then you've got meaning and purpose. So, you know, healthcare is about caring for people and looking after, pe after people. But if you're not connected to something meaningful to you and a wider purpose for the NHS, then that's going to cause you problems. And then there's the physical element. You know, physical health is hugely important. And if you're not able to look after your physical health, whether you are, you know, not able to make the, the right dietary choices because, because of the cost of food or whether, you know, you're, you're drinking or, or using drugs because you, you're, you're looking to cope and, and kind of, you know, ballast against your mental health, all those have an effect on you physically as well. And then, you know, even the physical, you look at the problems with sleep. You know, how many people are not sleeping properly because of the stress they're under and, when all of those, if you imagine they're a bit like a, you know, a, a graphic equalizer and, and, you know, you're not as old as me, so you won't remember graphic equalizers on tape decks that all of the levels are turned down. It, it massively increases your risk of, of, of burnout and stress and then patient harm. And then business is not doing particularly well and your relationships not doing particularly well. But if you can tweak those, if you can say, let's increase your authenticity, can you be yourself at work? Then, then brilliant. That that starts to slow the process down. But all of those five areas, if you start to tweak all those five areas, even by a few percent, it makes a huge difference. And I think one of the things you mentioned about authenticity, if you're a practice owner or indeed working in a small practice, usually it's just that something's not quite congruent. So it's not impossible. You just haven't tidied up. I mean, I can think of a very simple example. You haven't tidied up your website to be saying what it is that you want to be saying. So you're just aware of these things that aren't quite congruent with your whole message. And that's creating you a, a challenge. And actually, you can be authentic with relative ease of just confirming what you want your message to be and, being, and, and, and speaking it, getting it out there, having the courage to, to say what you want to say. Hundred percent, and and I, you know, I still remember the the tipping point for me in my podiatry business was that my marketing was very, you know, in in air quotes for the audio people there. Me stick my fingers in the air like little rabbits. It was it was very professional because that's what I was taught I needed to do. I'm a professional person with a professional qualification, and I can professionally treat your feet. And actually, when people came into clinic, they didn't get this person who looked professional. They got this person who got tattoos and was a skinhead and probably would have a laugh and tell you jokes and tell you stories. And I, I realized that I had to shift that around. I either had to become this professional person in clinic or sounded professional and behave professionally, but that was going to take a huge amount of energy, or I turned my marketing into something which was actually very much me. And, and that made a huge difference because when you are, when you are not authentic, I mean, any of these things, when you are not being yourself, it takes a huge amount of energy. You know, to, to be someone else during your work day, it just, it drains you. And it's energy we, we haven't got at the moment. Yes. Yeah. So that's some simple ideas of how you can improve the pillar of authenticity. Then you mentioned control and control of the, your, your working environment. I think one of the common things for clinic owners is feeling that I have a lack of control when a third party is dictating to them their prices and their treatment plans, and they're not able to deliver what they see the person in front of them would really benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, you know, I can I can see over my sort of my journey through through the health service was seeing that control erode. So starting off in a, 
as a manager in a, in a, a community trust where I, I got the flexibility, you know, I could, I could see patients on the way into work or on the way home. And, and that took the pressure off the system. And slowly but surely, when we, we merged with the hospital, our funding went, you know, they took our surplus because they were in debt and then they, they made us cut back our, our, you know, our money year on year, which, which put so much pressure on it. But yeah, if you, if you're not able to control what you do, when you do it, who you do it with, how you do it, that's, that's massively limiting. And that causes a lot of trauma in itself. It's, it's again, it's, it's energy to go through the day on that. And what, one of the stories that always pops up for me is a friend of my dad's who was diagnosed with prostate cancer a number of years ago. And he went to his doctor and the doctor said, look, your tests are negative, but I get this feeling that I should keep an eye on you. And so kept an eye on him. And then lo and behold, up popped this, this prostate cancer, which he treated. And he said to me, we were talking about this a few weeks ago. He said, if the doctor hadn't have had that opportunity to give me some space and just say, I'll keep an eye on you because it feels like it's the right thing to do that intuitive feeling, then he probably wouldn't be here. And what I'm seeing in, in a lot of healthcare is I'm seeing this squeezing of all of the stuff around the outside, all of the conversation and the psychology stuff, which is really important. The, you know, the, I wrote something in a post recently where I think I described it as, you know, you, you have a patient turn up in front of you. They're not just a meat sack with a problem. You know, they, they have this biopsychosocial, you know, that is the biology, it's the psychology and the sociology stuff, which is all fitting into place. And as a clinician, you want to be able to provide people with the opportunity to express all of those things because people get better quicker when you address the biology and the psychology and the sociology. So not having the control to do that, working in the NHS and being told that you've got to see 30 patients in a day is it, it's, you know, it's demoralizing, absolutely demoralizing. And that is the understatement of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And it being protocol driven or dictated. Yeah, then the absolutely. next one you mentioned is community or connection. And again, for the sole practitioner or the practice owner, it can feel incredibly lonely place. And that's something, again, that I hear quite commonly. So an obvious thing for that is very consciously going and making sure that you do find friends or somebody to talk to or stepping outside your room, because you can be in your treatment room all the time. There's conversations you need to have that you cannot be having with your clients. Yep, absolutely. And, and, you know, I still remember back in my early nursing days, we had community because we, we'd go out together after work. We, we, we would have fun. We'd all get together and okay. Things change. You, you get married, you have families, you, you know, your priorities change, but if you're working as a lone practitioner, then it's things like, you know, in, in terms of podiatry, we have, we have the Royal College of Podiatry branch network. So you've got people you can reach out to, but it's also having the suppose it's having the, the, the ability or maybe the momentum to actually start something yourself. So bringing people together in a community, the challenge with that is it's hard work. It's hard work to bring a community together. You know, we've both done community stuff ourselves. You still continue to do community stuff. And it's, it's hard to do that because it takes a lot of energy if other people aren't invested in that as well. But we know that there's some really good evidence that actually connection and community is really good for your mental health, really good. And even if it's professional where. You can have a chat about pricing or you can have a chat about business or patients or, you know, clinical cases, or whether it's something which is totally separate to that, whether it's, you know, getting together with a group of people and going out and throwing axes at wooden boards. Yeah, those kind of things are huge. I think there's, for a lot of people, there's been shifts in friendships and family relations over the last few years. And 
people certainly have mentioned to me that they've just been scared to speak. They've just been scared to talk. But sometimes, you know, you'll find the unexpected common mind in the supermarket or, I don't know, sat in the hairdressers. The, the, there is conversation out there if you'll just yeah. say hello. Yeah. And, and, and it, I mean, it is really interesting, I think, about those, those conversations which go on. The, you know, libraries have, and I think there's, there's a couple of cafes I've seen where they actually have tables where they've got signs on saying, you know, have you, if you sit here, then you're happy for someone to sit and have a conversation with you. And, and we're having to, we're almost having to encourage people to, to have dialogue with other people. And, and I, I find, I find that quite interesting, but I also get that after a number of years of, of crossing the road, because somebody might have something you might catch. I mean, I'm people, people cross the road when they see me anyway, that's because I'm, I'm six foot plus with a beard. So, but yeah, we, we were almost conditioned to, to not communicate with other people, to, to stay away from people. And it's a very British thing as well. Yeah. And you see in different places. Well, phones are not companions. No, they're not. And I'm looking around here and thinking about about seven phones for some reason. I don't know how that's... Not tech savvier than I am. Then you mentioned meaning and purpose, which I think is, well, a real challenge for many, many allied health professionals. I've made a post recently about, I sometimes think, and I don't know what your perspective on this is, the challenge for allied health professionals is determining who they're allied to. And if you're allied to the people you serve, it actually becomes really easy. And the conflict can come from trying to be allied to your professional body, to a network of other clinic owners in the area. Where actually, professionally, you should be allied to the people in front of you. That's mm. my view and, and can help clarify your meaning and purpose by understanding what their needs are and ensuring that you're meeting them. Yeah. Well, if you ask, if you ask any healthcare professional why they started doing what they did, you might get the cheesy response of, because I want to care for people. And it's like, hey, that, that, might, that might be right. I mean, you know, if, if I think about why did I start working for myself, it's because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Mm. Had I thought it through, maybe I would have done something different. But the, there is that balance between you know, that what's meaningful to you. Yeah, meaning is very personal. Whereas purpose is shared. So and, you know, if you look at any big organization like the NHS, or if you look at you know, smaller practices, there's a danger that you, you have a, almost like a practice mission statement, which everyone should be aligned with. Well, what if I don't want to be aligned with that? What if I'm kind of slightly aligned to it, but there's other things? So I think there's a really big conversation to, to understand what, what drives people. You, know, you, may, you may well find that actually... Your meaning is that you want to spend quality time with, with your children as they grow up. So all work is for you is a, is a means to pay for that. And that mean, that's great because you've got your meaning and you're honest about it. And it means you can, you can actually weather almost anything. But if you don't have that meaning and you don't have that purpose, it, it becomes a real, it's like walking through a treacle going to work. And especially when we're in an industry where we, we are required to be selfless and care for people. But if you don't have that connection to people, it's hard work. It's hard work. And, you know, you talked about the, the being allied to different things. You're allied to the, you know, focus on the patient in front of you or focused on your, your clinical practice or on your, on your professional body. I had a, I think it was a thought ages ago about something called a professionalism paradox, which is if you imagine a triangle and at the base of the triangle, it says professional. In the middle, it's got patient and on top, it's got personality. I think that's a really good system to work on is that you are professional. That's the basis of everything you do, but you use your personality. And in the middle is this patient who's lovingly kind of held 
but all the professional bodies would be like, yeah, yeah, but professionalism's got to be up the top so that you, you, everyone can see it. Yeah, it's an oppressive, tried... oppressive picture rather than, you're describing a supportive picture rather yeah. than oppression. And if you've ever tried to hold a giant pyramid up on its point, it's, it, it is absolutely exhausting. So you, there's, there's a couple of things you can do. One is you just let it go and you walk away. So you say, no, I can't do this anymore. And you walk away. And that's why we lose people from professions. Or you dig a hole in the ground because you can dig a hole and stick the point in. But what happens is you bury your personality and yeah. you be some of the patient all in the name of professionalism. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be professional. You know, professionalism is the base of what we do. But a whole group of people who all look the same is not, it's not a sexy thing for me. You know, we, we need to use the, the difference which we have, which is ourselves. It's back to the authenticity piece as well. Yes, I think that's an absolutely lovely description. It really, really that visual describes how the triangle needs to be, how it needs to be a right way around pyramid rather than an upside down pyramid, because otherwise it is very, very oppressive. And it's, it's energy, you know, as far, as far as I can tell, it's all about, it's all about using your energy. You, you have, you know, if you have a, if we use a bank account metaphor, you have at the beginning of the month, you have a certain amount of energy deposited into that bank account mm -hmm. and some activities will use more energy than others. You know, you withdraw more energy for certain things, but some things will give you energy. They'll give you like cash back on energy. So there'll be some activities which you do and it's like, yeah, that drains me, but not as much as it would do if I was doing it this way. And I think where you, where you are trying to be in or having to be incongruent with, with so many factors, just, you might as well just, you know, open up the tap and just let it all run out. And then, you know, this, this energy bank account doesn't, it doesn't have an overdraft. Once it, once it's gone, it's gone. And then you don't get anything until the, the beginning of the next month. And it might be, you get less that month because of, of what you've done that, that current month. It's. It's, it's all about energy. It's all about maximizing the energy you put into things and looking after it and protecting it. Which then brings us on to physical, which for me seems a really simple way but of recharging that energy in terms of it being something that can give back. But this is very much for me because I can straight away lean into swimming. If I swim, my world is always a better place. And if I get really stuck, I always, and this has been going on for years, check in, when was the last time you swam? And I know somebody once joined me, somebody joined me on the podcast a while ago and dance was his thing. If he got really down and his mum would say to him, have you danced? And he knew he needed to dance. So the physical activity is something, but then I am a physical therapist, can, I believe can really give an activity that really quite quickly can give back. But like I say, I'm a physical therapist for that very reason, probably. Well, it's, I know it's huge. And, you know, thinking back to my podiatry days, that was very much about keeping people on their feet and keeping people moving. Nursing and working in A&E, it was people coming in who were maybe a little bit broken and it was putting them back together and sending them on the way. But the, you know, the whole physical stuff, being able to get up, go out for a walk and, and move between places to experience different things is huge. And, you know, we can go down the, the route of looking at, you know, what, what does physical movement do for your cardiovascular health? Well, it, it, it's, it, it's just a fantastic thing, you know, heart health, it reduces your, you know, your, your risk of, of type two diabetes, it reduces your risk of heart disease, of stroke. Then you start looking at things like, you know, nutrition and how that affects things. So, you know, how much sugars in your diet, how much proteins in your diet, how much carbs, you know, you eat enough fiber, all of those things, because you start to work on the gut. And we know that the gut's got a lot of nerve endings in it, which communicates with different parts of your body, which is which is why, you know, we, we have that kind of instinct and gut feeling. 
And then you start to look at things like sleep. So the whole process of sleep, you know, knowing when you sleep best, knowing whether you need to have a cooler room or a warmer room, knowing when you get up, how, how soon in the day do you want to get some decent light on your eyeballs and what effect does that have on the chemical processes? And I, I saw a post on LinkedIn today by, by one of my connections where he was talking about the fact that when you start the day, you are essentially bookending your day for, for the end of the day. So that, that moment of getting, you know, sunlight on your eyeballs or good light on your eyeballs stimulates cortisol. You get a spike of cortisol that basically says, when is it you need to go to sleep? And then you start playing around with caffeine to see how that's going to affect your, your sleep pattern. So there's so many things to it, but starting to, you know, modify each of those pillars is is huge you play around with each of them a little bit and you find what what works better for you and and it, it does have a huge a huge impact on on everything and for each of us if we can be more self-aware there should be some very easy wins some very easy dials to turn and once you've turned those then you've got the capacity to be able to explore some of the other dials more deeply is what i'm i'm perceiving is that yeah absolutely i mean something i'm working on at the moment for when i speak of primary care in may of this year is, you know, I can, I can stand in front of an audience and say, oh, you should meditate and you should go out and walk 10,000 steps. So I can talk to people about that, but that doesn't work for everyone. Some people are like meditation, not a chance. Some people are like, do it already, mate. What, what, what do you want to talk about? So I'm kind of looking at how I can almost produce a, a document which people can use. So when they are at a point where, and, and you know, it's, it's very much geared towards mental health and, or mental fitness and well-being. But it's, you know, what are the questions I need to ask myself? What do I need to know beforehand? And actually, I can hand this document to someone when I'm struggling and they can check in on me, or I can actually ask somebody else these questions when they're struggling. So, yeah, identifying these areas that you need to work on. And this is, this is what I do with the coaching work is you, you sit down with people and you say, okay, how are you? Which of these areas is working for you? Be honest. Because, you know, if you're telling me it's all working really good, yet you are pulling most of your hair out and, you, you know, you're not happy, then, then I know that you're lying. And it's just getting people to slow down long enough to identify these things. It's huge, mm. huge. When, it, when, it, when people start to, to engage with this stuff, it, it makes all the difference. Wonderful. So what do you see in your crystal ball as being the future for the healthcare professional? So not taking the health and the, the health and safety policy and tagging the name well-being on the end of it, because that's just just tick box BS. I think I think there's a combination. There's certainly the the need for an individual to take control over what they're doing in terms of their you know those pillars, their mental health and their physical health and and community and all of those things. But it's also the organisations realising that that people on their own can do as much as they want, but if the organisation doesn't support it. Then you know you, you basically you basically weeing in win the sea. It's not going to make a difference. And we you know we we were talking about this before we started recording that if you we we've got a very big attitude at the moment around everyone for themselves. You know it's your responsibility to fix your mental health, and it's like it is, but it's not your fault necessarily that your mental health is where it is. It's you know society has for forty plus years been moving in a direction of less community and more individuality. And that doesn't help anyone. You know, 7 billion individuals on the planet is one thing, but connected communities, which can make a difference and support each other is, is even better. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a big, there's a, a big thing about individual responsibility, but also 
corporate business responsibility as well. And that's not saying that businesses have to do everything. It, it has to be an engagement process where everyone works together. So, yeah, I mean, those, those are the things I would probably be, be aiming at. And certainly around awareness. You know, it's, be, it's being aware of, of that physical health and that mental health and being aware of, your, of your, your mood and being aware of your mindset and being nice to yourself as well. A bit of compassion for yourself at the same time, which is overtly Buddhist for this time on a Tuesday afternoon, but I'm going with it. <laughs> so I'm hearing they're taking the responsibility but not beating yourself up with the blame along the way. Yeah, there's a, there's a great phrase. I, I did I did start a master's degree in mindfulness and compassion last year, but then very compassionately decided that the PG cert was better for me. And one of the one of the tutors I had was a monk, a, a, a lovely man called Choden, and he wrote a book with a, a guy called Professor Paul Gilbert. And there's a beautiful line in that book, which is, "It's not your fault that the lightning struck the roof of your house, but it is your responsibility to fix it." And so. It's being kind and compassionate to yourself to realize that actually a lot of the shit which goes on in your life is, is not your fault. But once you're aware of it, then you can start to tweak and do things about it. It doesn't mean that suddenly everything is your fault from that point onwards, because there's still a lot of residual stuff from trauma and your past and your relationship with all of that stuff. But it's understanding that actually, yeah, there's things you can do, but, but don't carry the weight of it all being your fault because it's not. Wonderful. Thank you very, very much for your insights and your time today, Dave. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marklandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable, sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.